Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. We're going to take some time in the next few episodes to look at economic impacts of the COVID-19 crisis situation. Today, we're going to talk to Scott Cullinane, who is the executive director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance, which is a bipartisan organization that looks at fostering the U.S.-Europe relationship. He was also formerly the professional staff member for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he's also an alumni of the Foreign Policy Fellowship Program that we do at the Woodrow Wilson Center. So welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I wanted to chat with you today because you have spent a long time studying the European relationship, uh, not just with the U.S., but also with each other in the European Union. And one of the things we were talking about as we were setting up here is the, the there's always the rumor that Europe is just going to break apart. This is it. Uh, certainly we had Brexit last year, which uh, spurred a lot of those comments. And now with COVID-19 and the various responses, uh, those rumors have just gotten higher again. So tell us how Europe is dealing with this crisis and maybe to that end, what do you see for the union? Well, I can certainly say the EU, like the US, is working to address uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, It certainly has posed uh, a public health and economic challenge, uh, but at the EU level, Uh, there has been some uh, important and significant steps uh, to try and and address the crisis. Every country kind of had its own response, it seems. Was there kind of an EU-wide, what was the EU-wide plan? Was there anything from Brussels that really gave each individual country something to do in their response? Yes. So the first thing to, to understand there is that uh, the EU is important in many ways, but uh, the EU does not have a strong role or a strong competency in healthcare or addressing this type of medical emergency. So one thing we saw early on, uh, particularly with Italy, both other states, is that um, uh, the national governments um, uh, were slightly inward looking to take care of of their own populations to address the immediate needs of, of securing medical supplies, moving medical staff to, uh, to hotspots and places where there were, um, were, were breakouts. Uh, you know, there was some early controversy about, um, about moving, uh, about exporting uh, medical supplies and, and PPE across borders. Um, you know, and so uh, at the EU level, there was a little bit of hesitancy. There was some early criticism about there being a, a lack of solidarity uh, between member states. And so there has been criticism of, of the uh, early EU response uh, being, uh, being somewhat uneven. Uh, but since then, uh, the European Union really has, really has uh, stepped up. Um, for the European Union and for Europe, this is really the fourth major crisis uh, they've confronted in the past the past decade, or the past 12, 12 or so years. First, there was uh, a financial crisis, 
then there was a sovereign debt crisis, and then in 2015, a migration crisis, and now the pandemic. And one of the things that the EU learned from those earlier experiences is that uh, time matters, and that there really is a necessity to, to act quickly and, and not to wait. Um, so while clearly at the, at the outset, the member states were, were in the driver's seat in terms of, uh, in terms of responding, um, the EU was not sitting back and, and doing nothing. And the EU used um, what tools it had at its disposal to try and help the situation. And, you know, there were uh, an immediate step up um, in terms of short-term relief financing uh, in a plan called the uh, Coronavirus Response Investment Initiative to send hundreds of millions of euros uh, to member states. There was uh, an easing in EU state aid rules that would enable member states to spend, uh, at this point, almost $2 trillion in extra uh, economic support spending that otherwise would not be possible under, under EU rules. Um, and the EU also did things like uh, like like uh, like uh, abolish VAT taxes on importing medical supplies, um, and so so the EU really did have a uh, a strong and important role uh, in stepping up quickly to to address the crisis. Um, even though there has been criticism that at the the very beginning uh, there there was a little bit of un uh, of of unevenness in that response. So how is the uh, stepping aside from the healthcare crisis, there is following on from a healthcare crisis, a economic crisis that is sweeping the globe and just a reduced demand for a lot of goods and services. How is Europe dealing with that? And how does the European Union and the European Central Bank address that? And we've seen, of course, you know, trillions of dollars come out in the United States, but the United States is one sovereign country, whereas EU has multiple interests to deal with. That's absolutely a concern. Um, the economic downturn, um, the economic, the looming economic depression uh, is going to hit Europe like the rest of the world very hard. And particularly uh, certain economies such as Germany's that are really dependent on exports. And even if uh, the German economy uh, is able to rebound quickly or is able to um, maintain some level of functionality and openness, uh, the German trading partners may not necessarily be in as good a shape. Um, so this is really something where uh, you know, the response to individual countries matters. Um, but the response of a whole is really important because of those, because of those very strong um, economic links. Uh, what's happened so far is that the EU has stepped forward with, with, uh, with a good deal of, of short-term relief financing. But what's being discussed right now is financing for the recovery, which will have to be uh, magnitudes greater. Um, and that's, that's really what's being, what's being worked out in the council and in, in the commission uh, as we speak. The, the main issue there, to cut to the heart of the matter through all the various uh, uh, acronyms or programs, but the real core of the question that the member states are wrestling with is a question of debt. How much debt 
and who's going to hold that debt. One of the processes that was happening in the EU uh, before the coronavirus struck is that there were negotiations happening for the next multi-annual financial framework, the MFF, the seven-year EU budget. And that was already being negotiated um, without great success. And uh, as you'll recall, in January, the UK formally left the EU. And that left a hole in the EU budget. And member states were already negotiating how to, how to, fill, uh, how to fill that gap. And so this uh, challenge of addressing the economic depression from COVID um, is, is adding some complication to an already very complicated uh, budget negotiation. And some of the questions that are being uh, worked out right now between the council and the commission are questions of, does this relief spending happen within the framework of the, of, of the multi-annual financial framework within the EU budget? Or does it happen through an outside mechanism? And, and part of the challenge there is that through the budget, the EU is not allowed to have deficit spending. And so what that means is that they either have to uh, cut programs somewhere else uh, or, or they have to increase donations or in increase contributions rather from member states. And you can imagine member states that are facing their own economic downturn aren't always um, uh, very inclined to also increase contributions uh, to, to the EU budget. So there's a question there about if it's inside the EU budget or outside the EU budget. Uh, there's also a question of, of, how, of how to structure it, it, either in the form of loans or in the form of grants. And also talk about possibilities of if they're loans, are they backed by the EU or are they backed by EU member states? So there are all these um, you know, nuances about how to finance this recovery that uh, frankly just haven't been, uh, been worked out yet. And uh, you know, part of the uh, dynamic here and part of the concern is that there, there is a split between um, countries like Germany or Austria or the Netherlands that are more for fiscal restraint. And there are countries uh, usually in the South, like Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, that uh, are in favor of, uh, of greater levels of, uh, of support at, at the European level. And the, the dynamic we're seeing is that, you know, uh, the Northern countries uh, aren't, aren't big fans of grants or of mutualizing debt. Uh, they want loans, but the southern countries um, already have very high uh, debt to GDP ratios, and so taking on more debt uh, is not uh, is not very attractive for them. And, and certainly, if they went to to borrow uh, more money, uh, the, the interest rate they would be charged uh, would be greater. So, that, so there is this tension. Um, between the northern states and the southern states that will be worked out and will play out through this negotiation of how to structure uh, the recovery from the pandemic. So this is a problem that goes back for years, this north-south divide in the European Union. And 
it has been an economic issue in previous it crises as well. Has been. So how are those previous crises with the financial crisis in 2008-2009 and the sovereign debt crisis, how are they influencing what we're seeing right now? In the first way, the uh, Northern European countries went into this crisis in, 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 in much better economic shape. They had less debt. They had recovered better from the financial crisis. And in some ways, the lockdowns have been less severe in that there's still, there's still been some level of economic activity going on in Germany and in the Northern EU countries. In Italy and in the South, uh, the recovery from the sovereign debt crisis has been slower, has not been as great. There is still uh, relatively high, but not unsustainable levels uh, of debt. And they've been hit by more, uh, by, by more severe lockdowns um, during the pandemic. So going into this crisis, there was a level of economic uneasiness and there was um, also, in some cases, uh, negative, you know, harsh feelings, negative feelings um, for, for the way they were treated. And, and the sense that, uh, in some cases, uh, Germany prioritized itself over the economic recovery or well-being of, of the southern states. So one of the risks I see as we uh, go into this recovery period and as Europe figures out its, its way forward, is that uh, there is a potential for, uh, for a divergence, for a, 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 growing, a growing rift, not only in terms uh, of economic development, but in terms of, uh, of faith in the, in the European project. And that there is a potential that there could be a growing resentment on both sides, res growing resentment in the, in the South that Europe didn't do enough and growing resentment in the North that they're just being used, um, uh, being used uh, to fund not just relief from the coronavirus, but to fund uh, years of public mismanagement by, by European governments. Uh, and I have seen one poll from Italy just in the past uh, six weeks or two months that has shown uh, a, a dramatic weakening in support for the EU among the Italian public. And that is very worrying. So it, it's very important that as we think about how to address this, this economic recovery, both in terms of, uh, of a transatlantic relationship and in terms uh, of internal uh, European recovery, that there has to be the sense of uh, of solidarity between all the countries, and and not and, and that this does not feed a sense that there are are winners and losers in the outcome. You mentioned the poll that's in Italy of the feeling uh, towards the European Union. I'm curious how uh, countries are dealing with the politics of this crisis in this country here in the U.S. We see a political divide over the response to coronavirus. You've got protesters against lockdowns um, and people are really taking it as a political issue. Is that something that you see in Europe? It, it, it is. It absolutely is a political issue, though uh, not necessarily in, in the same way as we see in, in Michigan or in some states 
uh, here in, in the U.S. Um, one thing I would point to that I think is very important for Americans to, uh, to be aware of is, is the way uh, the, the pandemic and, and the coronavirus um, crisis um, is being treated not just as uh, an issue of public health or an issue of, of economics, but it's also being misused by certain actors uh, in Europe for uh, their domestic political benefit. And, and the number one example of this is, is Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, Prime Minister Orban has been in power now for for almost almost ten years in Hungary, and he has um, overseen a, a dramatic decline in, in in the quality of the democracy and rule of law in Hungary. Uh, in fact, Hungary is now the only country in the European Union that's ranked by Freedom House as being only partly free. And so, one of the things he has done uh, is he's used his majority in the Hungarian parliament to pass what's called uh, the Enabling Act, which gives him uh, virtually uh, unlimited power to rule by decree without any sunset provision. So it's not just during the crisis. It is what you see is it, it could go on forever. Many European countries, uh, many governments have adopted some version of of an emergency uh, law or an emergency status. But in most cases, that's done uh, on the basis of a political consensus with buy-in from multiple political parties from the opposition. It's limited in, in time and it's limited in scope with, with, with narrowly defined powers that it, that it gives the, the executive. Not so in Hungary. The enabling law is written in a, in a very broad way, in the sense that uh, almost anything could be read into it. And it gives him the power to uh, uh, change any existing law in Hungary by decree. And the risk here is not only, it's not just a theoretical one, uh, it has already been used for to do things that have nothing to do with public health or or the coronavirus. In the local elections uh, last fall, the Hungarian opposition did very well in the local elections, and they uh, won the the mayoral race for the capital Budapest and four of the five largest cities. And so, what, what Orban has done is he has used his newfound powers uh, to go after uh, and remove uh, uh, revenue from municipalities and local administrations, particularly those that are now ruled by opposition parties. And he has done this uh, by creating special economic zones that take away uh, tax revenue from uh, from from local from local cities, he has done things like uh, um, uh, abolish fees for parking, and uh, that being one of the sources of revenues for local government. Uh, he has also used uh, uh, his power to uh, reduce by fifty percent the amount of public financing 
given to political parties. Now, that does apply to all political parties, but given that his party, Fidesz, has the ability to use uh, state resources virtually without limit, for him, that doesn't really constrain the ability of his party to act, but does, per, does put a, a relatively large burden on the opposition. So uh, to answer your question, it absolutely is uh, a, a political issue, um, but the, the the fault lines are are a little bit different. So what do you see out on the horizon that we should be watching out for in Europe? Obviously, there's going to be a recovery. Obviously, there's going to be other moves economically to try to stabilize the economy. But what issues are out there? You, I mean, I think that what you've said about Hungary is certainly something to watch. And uh, it's always interesting to get the view uh, from somebody who watches this daily, what to watch out for. There are a number of, of, of strategic issues that are of importance. You know, we've already discussed the need to make sure there's not uh, a divergence between different parts of Europe. And there's also a need to make sure that the recovery from this pandemic does not exacerbate any transatlantic tensions. But beyond that, we need to make sure that this does not provide uh, an opening for either uh, Russia or China uh, to, find, to find leverage um, and to create new divisions. Um, and we also need to make sure that this doesn't take our eye off, off the number of important transatlantic issues that were high on the agenda only a few months ago. And there, there is a need to maintain uh, focus on, for example, supporting the Euro-Atlantic integration and reform efforts in Ukraine there's going to continue to be a conversation about defense spending and the need for European militaries to spend more on their own defense and on burden sharing. You can certainly imagine a scenario where as uh, national budgets are, are constrained and tax revenue shrinks, it will be tempting uh, to put uh, some of those cuts onto the defense sector and onto those militaries. And that potentially is one of a concern. Uh, and then for the moment, there is still uh, a lot of focus on, on the immediate uh, medical response and saving lives and saving livelihoods uh, inside Europe. But the pandemic will hit Africa. It will hit Latin America. It, 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 will, it, will, go, um, it will go there. And so there will be a need for a, for a European and for a transatlantic response uh, to go into those areas where there is limited medical infrastructure, where in some places there may not, might not even be uh, clean water or running water. And we don't want the pandemic uh, in those places to be a source of, uh, uh, of instability or to cause uh, you know, uh, massive levels uh, of death that might otherwise be, be avoided. So while we are uh, having to address some immediate short-term concerns. Uh, there are uh, long-term priorities that we cannot lose sight of and that we have to begin to work to address those now before those two are upon us. 
Very interesting, Scott. Thank you for joining us today. Scott Cullinane, he was the executive director for the U.S.-Europe Alliance. And uh, also, he did the Foreign Policy Fellowship Program at the Wilson Center when he was on the Hill. So he is an alumni of the Wilson Center. Thank you so much for sharing what you've been watching for us. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this episode. I hope everyone stays safe, stays healthy, keeps listening to the podcast to learn more of what you need to know. And we will be back next time. Thanks for joining us.